KYW Original Podcasts. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic in Philadelphia, subscribe to KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Coronavirus Pandemic from KYW In-Depth. I'm Carol McKenzie. Doctors are seeing an illness in kids that appears to be related to the novel coronavirus. It's called multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, or MISC. The CDC has issued a health advisory for MISC and now has a dedicated team investigating it. And the PA Department of Health has issued an alert. We wanted to find out what doctors know about it and what they don't. So we got in touch with Dr. Audrey John. She's chief of CHOP's Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases. Dr. John, I wanted to just start out by asking you, what is multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children, or MISC? What does it do? Sure. So we think that this is a syndrome that um, happens after an initial infection with the novel coronavirus. Typically, we see it in normal, healthy children. They don't seem to have necessarily had symptoms of coronavirus infection in the past, but what we see is most children have uh, antibodies or signs that they've had the infection, Um, and many of them have uh, family members or other close contacts who've had coronavirus infection or COVID-19. And the children come in with high fevers and then a variety of other symptoms, which have included rash, red eyes or conjunctivitis, increased lymph nodes, And many of them have had bad abdominal pain or diarrhea. And then the most concerning symptom is that, especially in the initial reports, the children came in in shock. So their hearts were not working as well as they they should. And so they needed uh, intensive care support to support their blood pressure. Do you have any idea why this is happening? Particularly, I mean, it's particularly puzzling that These kids, one, maybe didn't have symptoms or two, didn't test for, as you said, an active COVID-19 infection, but may have had antibodies, which would indicate, right, that they have gotten they, they had it, but they got over it. Yeah, that's exactly what I think happened is that they had it and got over it. And then um, this is really a post-infectious inflammatory syndrome. And and it um, while it sounds really unusual, we see this with other viral infections. So it's not too uncommon to have other types of infections that essentially trigger some sort of weird autoimmune or hyper-inflammatory syndrome. And so um, we see these sort of post-infectious syndromes and in other infections. Infections, And so it's just this is the particular manifestation of it, we think, related to the novel coronavirus. Does this have any connection to the, the cytokine storm that what we've been hearing about in adults, the, the, the immune system kind of going nuts and causing all this inflammation? So I think it's related but different. There's some ongoing research at CHOP on what the difference is in the immune response in children with this MISC condition versus children or adults who have that cytokine storm in the setting of acute coronavirus infection. And our initial indications is that they are different, and that has implications to the way we might treat it. Okay. But they're similar in the sense that it's both a dysregulated immune response. Okay. Have, how many cases have you seen? Um, we've seen uh, between 10 and 20 now. And I can't be hard on the numbers because we're still trying to understand which children sort of fit into this box because the initial cases were all, the children were very severely ill. They came in in shock. 
And so that was really easy to recognize. And I think we're appreciating now that there's a spectrum of illness. And so there are children who might have fever, abdominal pain, rash, and don't necessarily uh, meet all the sort of features of, of the children we originally saw. Can you give me the age range of the children you've treated? So we're seeing uh, mostly elementary school and teenagers. And what are their outcomes? What have their outcomes been? So fortunately, our experience has been uh, like that in other cities, which is that the children respond very well to treatments that would be used for a different inflammatory syndrome called Kawasaki's disease. And so we treat them and they, they tend to recover very quickly. What is that treatment? How do you, how do you, how do you deal with this? Sure. So the the normal treatment for Kawasaki disease is a treatment called intravenous immunoglobulin or IVIG. And this is a product that's essentially pooled antibodies from a whole bunch of different donors. And the way we think it works is that it really tampens down uh, this uh, dysregulated immune response, um, this exuberant immune response. And so we've been treating children with IVIG and also steroids, which is sometimes given uh, for severe Kawasaki disease. So our experiences have been that those that the children respond very well to these treatments. Do you know, and I, I'm, I'm assuming that you are in contact with other infectious disease specialists at other hospitals in our area. Would that be a correct assumption? That's true. Mm-hmm. So what are you hearing from them? Are, are they also seeing cases? Can you give, give us an idea of, you know, in general, in our area, how many cases of this we've seen? I think that the Philadelphia Department of Health is beginning to track these cases, and uh, I have not heard the most recent numbers on that. I think we're probably around 20 in our area. Is the damage caused by this reversible? So, unfortunately, of course, it's brand new. We've really only recognized this condition for a few weeks, and so we really don't have a sense of what the long-term outcomes will be for these children. What we have seen is that the children who've come in with problems with their heart working, that problem tends to reverse very quickly. Some of the children have had abnormalities of the blood vessels in their heart, and uh, those may not necessarily go away. And we don't know in either case um, whether the children that have recovered completely to our, uh, so far or the children who had abnormalities in their blood vessels. We don't yet know what's going to happen to them long term. So when they come off the steroids, when the IVIG wears off, is this going to recur in those children? It's very rare for it to recur in Kawasaki disease, and we certainly hope that's going to be the case here. But we, don't, we frankly don't know because we've really not uh, experienced this disease before. At this point, and this is not, I mean, you are still learning a lot about this. There is quite a bit you don't know yet. What is? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is quite literally a brand new condition. Yeah. You know, it was originally thought that kids don't get very sick from coronavirus. And you kind of mentioned that you're trying to figure out which kids actually had this because it is so new. So do you think that this is something that's newly coming out of this or you know, that we didn't see in the beginning, or do we not realize what it was in the beginning? I think for the most part, it's the latter, that we just didn't recognize that this was what was going on. So, you know, in our first couple cases in Philadelphia, it was before this condition had been described in the UK and Europe. And we knew something was very strange and that these children were not responding like we expected them to respond to other therapies. And really, it was about our third case when we began to hear the reports from the UK and Europe and really could see this pattern and had a 
better sense of what might be going on. So I think for certain, we wouldn't have recognized this with the first patient. It's impossible to recognize a pattern until you've seen enough of, of a given condition. And so I think that it's very likely that um, the first cases in most places were, were not well recognized. Have you been able now to look back at the pattern and see or figure out if some kids are more susceptible to this? That's a really important question and a really uh, important ongoing question. So what we think happens in Kawasaki's disease, um, which is sort of our our frame of reference here, is that uh, it's a combination of both genetic susceptibility, so you're born more likely to get Kawasaki disease, and some sort of trigger, inflammatory trigger, and we think that's probably an infection that sort of triggers this in people who are susceptible. I think that's likely to be the case here as well. Given how widespread coronavirus infection has been, the fact that we're really only talking about hundreds of cases in children, not thousands, I think tells you right there that it's not just the virus, it's the virus plus something else. And so I think that it's likely that there will be both the genetic susceptibility, but also the the need for some sort of inflammatory trigger. How long does it take scientists to kind of figure, figure a virus like this out, figure out what's going on? I think that it will be easier than it has been for Kawasaki disease. Kawasaki disease and understanding the the triggers and the genetics there is still an ongoing process. But I think that probably reflects that that typical Kawasaki's is triggered by more than one, can be triggered by more than one virus. So I'm hopeful that since we are really dealing with a single infectious trigger here, that we'll be able to figure it out more quickly. How concerned are you about this? So, uh, Again, I think this is actually quite rare, given the number of, of children we think that have had uh, coronavirus in our in our area alone. Uh, we've really are, have only seen a handful of, of patients who've been severely affected like this. So, in general, I think I'm I'm not too concerned. That being said, we know so little right now, and we really don't have a good idea of the the whole spectrum of of post-infectious complications for, from coronavirus. So, we're certainly on the lookout for whether this could be more common than originally thought. And what, what's your advice to parents? What, you know, what would you tell parents who are concerned about this? Well, I think that the main advice is that they should not hesitate to reach out to their pediatrician or the emergency room if they're worried. Um, and so I know that a lot of families are reluctant to go to healthcare providers in the middle of a pandemic, and that's very understandable, but we're open for business and we're doing a lot to keep our patients and our, our staff safe. So families that are worried, I think they can trust their judgment here. Um, if you're worried about your kid, we want to we see them and we want to hear about them. When adults go to the hospital with coronavirus, you know, we've heard these heartbreaking stories. Nobody is allowed to go in and see them. How are you handling this with children? Oh, that is not what we're doing at shop. So um, that just really would not work in a pediatric facility. And so we allow parents at the bedside. We're uh, limiting the the movement of parents around the hospital uh, in a way that we would not normally. And families uh, of patients who are known to have coronavirus uh, are restricted to the room to, to keep everyone else safe, but they're allowed to stay at the bedside. Yeah, I was just wondering how you would handle that, because obviously, you know, you would not want a child in there alone, but it, it it's so contagious, um, you know, that's obviously a concern. That's With- right. Well, we have all our staff are masked and we are asking all families to mask as well. And so really trying to keep the environment safe for everyone. What is your opinion now about, you know, as we're starting to, to, to move that per- certain parts of the state are starting to move into the yellow phase and some are even moving into the green phase? 
What is your concern as we do that? Are you concerned about daycares reopening at this point? I'm less concerned about daycares. I think uh, it's really essential for people to have childcare. Otherwise, we're really not going to be able to reopen the economy at all. I'm very worried about the disproportionate effect this is having on women in our economy in particular. And so I think it's very important to have childcare. I think that the toddlers seem to do really, really well uh, with coronavirus. This miscondition actually seems to be more in, in slightly older ages than we would normally see with, with Kawasaki disease. Um, and, and there's uh, certainly some indications from initial studies that children are less likely to transmit coronavirus than, than adults, which is very different than what we see with other uh, vir- respiratory viral infections. So I think with proper precautions, this can be done safely. And what would those precautions be? Because anybody who's been around a toddler knows. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Toddlers are, are, are classic super spreaders, right, yeah. for other viral infections. I think actually the, the main issue is not the children, but the staff. So keeping staff away from each other because they, I think, are the highest risk for each other. I think they are more at risk for getting coronavirus from each other than they are from the children. Making sure that that staff have access to good hand hygiene, are are masked, especially when they're together. Don't eat lunch across from each other because we know that unmasked people eating is a high risk time. And then continuing to have excellent policies for for truly empowering people to stay home when sick. So, you know, one of the things that I think is increasingly apparent is that while some adults can transmit asymptomatically, many have very, very mild symptoms. So people should stay home if they have a little bit of a tickle in their throat or if they're not smelling, right, or not tasting food. So I think it's really important for people to be attuned to their bodies and uh, and also have the, the paid leave and the uh, and be truly empowered to stay home even when very mildly ill, which is, I, I know, a little difficult for a lot of us. And I, you know, I'm going to ask you, this might not be a totally fair question, but just to look forward to the fall, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty about school and whether or not it's going to reopen. And a lot of kids have anxiety about that, too, because everything is so uncertain With what you're seeing as an infectious disease specialist, do you think that it's possible that schools could reopen in the fall, you know, to have students inside? Or do you think it's going to be still virtual or maybe a mix thereof? You know, it, it, the the crystal ball was murky there for sure. Yeah. Um, but I think that um, we really have to balance both the physical health and the risk of infection in children with their their mental health and their um, educational development. And I think it's it there are clear harms to keeping children at home this long, and it's just not good for for child development, and it's just not good for their mental health. And so I think we're going to have to do something to balance those two. And so I think some combination of flexible at-home learning uh, in in some capacity with being physically in school, whether that's taking shifts or reducing classroom size or some combo of one group of children at school for one one week, one children at school for for a different week. I think we've got to do something because otherwise it's just really, we're going to have long-term health consequences in children that we just can't bear as a society. Yeah, it it is really difficult. I mean, it's difficult for the kids, it's difficult for the parents, many of whom are working from home and now trying to to almost homeschool their kids, particularly if you have younger kids. It's it's really tough. Oh, absolutely. And it's really tough for those of us who have, uh, you know, a ton of, of resources. But um, 
individuals from uh, under-resourced communities are really very disproportionately affected here. And I'm, I'm very worried about the disproportionate effects on, on some of our at-risk families. Yeah. How are you, how are you doing? How's your staff doing? You know, <laughs> thank you for asking. Um, we have, uh, they've been amazing, actually. Absolutely amazing. The, the Division of Infectious Diseases at CHOP is staffed with truly dedicated, creative, hardworking uh, individuals. Every single person has taken on some sort of new role, many of whom have taken on many, many new roles. And I think we we know that this is our moment, right? This is literally the work we trained to do. And it's been, while very stressful, very, very fulfilling. So um, we're trying to uh, remind everyone this is a marathon, not a sprint, because uh, everything seems so important right now. But I think this is going to be with us for a while. Um, but for But for now, we're doing pretty well. Yeah, I can't imagine what it's like for you to it, it, I mean you're you're treating something like you said totally new and so you're learning as you go. You're trying to figure out the disease and then you're trying to figure out how to how to deal with it, how to treat it. That's right. And and that is it it's an incredibly stressful thing to know that that probably is as careful and as cautious and as data-driven as we've tried to be, that we're probably making mistakes and we may be making very bad mistakes. Um, and, that, and that's something that we know every time a new disease has been described. Um, some of the ways that we used to treat HIV, for instance, were really not not the way we would do things now. And so um, unsurprisingly, I think we are going to find that some of the things that, that we are currently doing um, in, in some time in the future, when we know more, we will go, oh, I can't believe we used to do that. But we, we've only got the data we've got right now, and we're trying to be very cautious and very careful with it. It's got to be hard, too, to deal with parents who have a really sick child like that, and you can't tell them definitively, you know, this treatment is going to work or this is the best treatment for them. That's right. And, and I think we um, in the U.S. Are, are benefiting a little bit from the fact that this peaked abroad just a little before us. And so at least we can say this is what's worked for, for other. At, at the very uh, start, we were able to say this is what's worked for, for other uh, institutions. It's just it continues to be important for all of us to put out our data as quickly as possible so that the next institution where, where this hits is, is a little more informed than, than we were. Dr. John, is there anything that I haven't asked you that um, that you think is important to know about this? I think it's important for families to know that we don't think this condition can be transmitted from kid to kid. So we really do think that this new multisystem inflammatory disorder is something that has happened to children who've had their coronavirus infection, um, but have already gotten over that acute infection. Um, we're still trying to understand for sure whether they um, have any infectious virus, but many of them have no vi virus that can be detected at all. And I certainly don't think the multi-system inflammation can be transmitted from child to child. Dr. John, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth Coronavirus. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic, or if you just want to know more than what you're hearing on the news right now, if you want to go a little deeper, if you want to know how this could change your life or your routine, then subscribe to the KYW In-Depth podcast. Search for KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Carol McKenzie, and we'll have another episode out soon.